0: So as we continue on uh, in our Genesis um, series, sermon series, we're continuing on today with sermon number 14, if you're keeping track. Um, Two sons, laughter and God hears, and one seed. We're going to jump right in this morning. Look with me at Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Where are we? Well, we begin with the narrator, Moses, traditionally telling us that the Lord visited Sarah. Look with me there on page 3 of Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah, and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. What happens here is truly a miracle, right? And the psalmist proclaims it in the psalm that we said today, for he gives the barren children. If you've ever gone through infertility, and I know there's some couples who have in our parish, you know that this is truly... Something that brings great stress into a marriage and mourning. But the Lord has healed Sarah. Here we read that he's touched her. Now, beyond that, Sarah was 90 or 91 years old when she conceives Isaac. And so, beyond natural change... She here is touched by the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word is pakwad, meaning divine intervention. And it's a particular type of divine intervention here that God touches her. It's a word that's used to change destiny, to change history. It has all of that baked into it. So, you know, we see touched here, but read into this miracle that changes Destiny that changes everything about history. Because that's what Scripture is saying here. And this is the moment that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for, isn't it? God has fulfilled His promise to Abraham and Sarah. Despite their issues of doubt, despite their stumbling in their faith, which they have done repeatedly, right? Not just last week with Abimelech. But before that, and they respond here as they should, with obedience and rejoicing in God. Look with me at the next part of the text. First, Abraham names this son as God told him. He names him Isaac. Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac, which means laughter. And it's reminiscent of that incident where the angel, the visitation, the three angels, messengers of God visiting Sarah and Abraham came and promised the son to them. And of course, Sarah laughs at the thought. And so God in his irony (laughs) tells them to name this son Laughter. God's made laughter for me, says Sarah. She's joyful. Look at the next section here. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah rejoices at this. I think that's an important point to stop and think about. That Sarah is so overcome with joy in the fulfillment of God's promise that even the fact that she laughed at God's promise a while ago doesn't inhibit her joy. Do you see that? She even says, people will laugh at me, but praise God for he's given me a son. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It is a joyful response to the Lord. God has made laughter for me. They've waited at this time for this culmination of God's promise for 25 years if you're counting. Can you imagine that? Waiting for 25 years back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Isaac or promised Abraham rather that his seed would be the nation of Israel and would bless all other nations. And so here is that child of promise after 25 years. But notice there's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem that comes up quickly in the text here. And that is that because of their lack of faith and trust in God's plan, Abraham and Sarah, having hatched this scheme to bring forth a child through Hera's maidservant, Hagar, have a competitor, to an heir. Do you see the problem? Recall Father Joshua's sermon, which he preached to us back on, I believe the 25th of July, from Genesis chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And you'll remember the story if you weren't here with us at that point. We read, And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Which, of course, is not true, but that's what Sarai says. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, listening to the voice of Sarai, listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This faithless act of Sarah and agreed to by Abram at the time, but Abraham introduces great sin into Abram's household. And sin ripples through families, through generations, through households, through communities. And so this great time of joy is tinged with the effects of sin like all sin. Notice the sins that were committed back in chapter 16. Hagar, this servant maid, is forced into a terrible situation, forced into being a second-class wife to Abram. Now, even if she had a choice in this matter, which is doubtful, the fact is that she is being used by Abram and Sarai, back in chapter 16. And this makes Hagar bitter, as we can understand. It makes her bitter towards Sarah. But when she conceives and bears Abram a son, something that Sarah can't do at that point, that ripple effect brings hatred and contempt from Sarah onto Hagar the mother of Ishmael. And Abraham sins himself even more, not defending the honor of his wife, Hagar, and standing up for her against his wife, Sarah, back in Genesis 16. So according to Genesis 16:16, 16, 16, Abraham and Hagar's son, Ishmael, is born when Abraham is 86 years old. You know, sometimes with Scripture, it's hard for us to put the timelines together. But think about the ripple effect of this sin in Abraham's household. This family dysfunction has gone on for no less than 15 years, if you look at the ages. For Abraham is 100 when Isaac is born. Can you imagine this contention in his household? For 15 years? Look at just how much this has twisted Sarah in today's reading. As we continue on, look at Genesis 21, verses 8 through 11. And the child, that is, Isaac, grew and was weaned. He stopped nursing. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Do you see... The twisting that the sin has done in Sarah's heart. Do you see how she looks and despises Ishmael? This dysfunction. Sarah has not only dismissed him, but has dehumanized her maidservant, Hagar. Did you catch that? What does she call Hagar? Does she call her your second wife? Does she call her my maid servant? No. What does she call her? A slave. A slave. Why is she doing this? She's been so twisted by her sin that she is dehumanized, not just Abraham's son, but Hagar herself, calling her a slave repeatedly and calling for her to be cast out, which essentially in this culture is... Death. You see, in this culture, you had to be attached to a household somehow to survive. It's like a feudal system. If you weren't in that household, there was no economy for you to go to. Right? And so she's calling for Abraham to cast out Ishmael. His son, notice. Notice she doesn't say that. She says, You're the slave's son And so why is Abraham so displeased? When we look at the word behind displeased in the Hebrew text here, it's an understatement in English, to say the least. In Hebrew, displeasure, this verb, is used by God several times in Genesis, and when God's displeased in this way, people die. Right? This isn't just, I'm irked. This is, he's ticked off. Abraham is ticked off. He's Probably a mixture of so many things. Rageful, fed up, guilty, because he, of course, bears bears part of the blame. Ashamed. And having a split mind and torn heart. Notice this dysfunction that continues on in the family, even in this moment. Because think about this. Abraham is having to choose. Not just between his wives, but between his sons between his own offspring. He's the father of Ishmael, just as he's the father of Isaac. But again, God intervenes. And even in the midst of this, God's intervention brings a solution, but it's a painful solution. Look at verses 12 through 14. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Hagar and Ishmael must go. As twisted as Sarah's motives are here, she's right. There can be only one patriarch. There can be only one heir. And in this case, the heir must be the younger son, Isaac, and not Ishmael. And so you see that even with God's solution the sin has rippled through 16 years, and the sin continues to hurt Hagar, Ishmael, and Abraham, despite the fact that it's a solution. And yet God has remained faithful despite Abraham and Sarah's faithless act that caused this trouble to begin with. I can't imagine the distress that Abraham must have had thinking about this but the word translated, translated child here is actually a bad translation, which at least tempers the reading. If we put together the timelines, Ishmael here is about 16. He's a, he's a teenager. He's not a little child, not a little infant when he's cast out. And nevertheless... We have to see the pain that must go on in Abraham for he's never going to see his son again. He's never going to see his second wife again. And again, he knows this is all his fault. But this too, though difficult, is an act of obedience to God. And Abraham entrusts Hagar and Ishmael to God and his promises. I think that's the ultimate thing that tempers this and changes it is that Abraham is not abandoning them to the wilderness, but he's putting them in the hands of God. And so he does so. God is merciful. That's something we see throughout Scripture. He doesn't abandon Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. And indeed, this stay in the wilderness foreshadows many things in the rest of Scripture. When their supplies run out, Hagar goes far enough away from her son so that she doesn't hear him die. Look at verse 16. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Again, that should be translated lad. And she sat opposite of him. She lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel, angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. God hears the boy's voice, the Scripture tells us. Do you remember what the name Ishmael means? Anybody remember what the name Ishmael means? Isaac is laughter. Ishmael is God hears. God hears. Or the Lord hears. And so next, God reminds Hagar of his promise for her son. Look again at verse 18. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God promised Abraham this back in chapter 17, and he reiterates it to, to Ishmael's mother. The phrase, God was with the boy here, later on, is fascinating. Look with me at the rest of the reading, we'll finish it up here. Verse 20, or verse 19 rather. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Again, the phrase here, God was with the boy, is fascinating. For even even though Ishmael was not part of the chosen seed, was not part of God's work through Abraham to bring forth Jesus through Isaac, as his great-great-great-grandson. Nevertheless, God is with Ishmael. Scholar and commentator Alan Ross points out that Hagar and Ishmael were people of faith. Why? Because who do they turn to in their distress? Who do they turn to in their distress when they're about to die in the desert? The Lord God. And the Lord hears their cry. And so they trust in him with faith. Here in this Genesis passage, we see that. And we also see God's mercy and blessing, not just with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, but with Hagar and Ishmael. For indeed, they flourish despite being cast out into the wilderness. They go down to Paran, which is modern-day the Saudi peninsula, most people think. And And he continues on. Now, we don't know the rest of the story. Scripture shifts back to the story of Isaac. And yet, here we see the incredible mercy of God, even though, and especially, perhaps, because they were wronged by the patriarch Abraham and Sarah's sin. That's redeemed. So, what does this say to the church and to each of us personally? Well, number one, that God's promises are reliable. Reliable. We've heard this theme again and again and again so far in Genesis. Is it sinking in yet? Is it sinking into us yet? God's promises are reliable. He will bring to fulfillment all that he's promised. And I would add to that that he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is wait, right? We have a whole couple seasons in the church year devoted to waiting, Advent and Lent, where we're waiting for the action of the Lord. And as Christians, we're called to wait on God's promises. We're not called to intervene. And sometimes when we intervene as Abraham and Sarah did, we screw it up royally and cause pain and dysfunction. But there's a constant temptation for the church and for each of us as individuals to take matters into our own hands, to try to fulfill or force God's promises and forget that we're the bride of Christ, not the bridegroom, that we as the bride are to follow and to obey and love and listen to Jesus, not to lead. It's no small point that much of the 20th century, the church... America at least, has tried to lead instead of waiting for Jesus to lead. Do you know that at the beginning of the 20th century, they called the 20th century the Christian century? How many of you have seen that magazine? There's actually still a magazine to this day named the Christian century. That's why it's called that because the idea was that by golly, the gospel had gone forth and the church was going to bring Jerusalem here. We were going to build the kingdom on this world, and what happened? World War I, World War II, the bloodiest century of the entire of, of all mankind was the 20th century. So much for bringing heavenly Jerusalem about. But there was this great hubris in the church. there was this idea that ours was to bring forth some sort of utopia here on earth, rather than waiting for Jesus to bring it to us, as the book of Revelation says. Friends, be careful. It's well and good to talk about being part of the building of the kingdom of God. But make sure you're being led by Jesus in the building of His kingdom, and not taking the reins into your own hands and taking things into your own hands, thinking that you can make things better. Remember, our job as the church is to proclaim Christ Jesus and His kingdom, not to build it. I'll say that again. Remember, our job as the church is to proclaim Jesus Christ and His kingdom, not to build it. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? To build it is to take control of it and to try to force it. That's not our job. Rather, our job is to be obedient and let God use us in his building of it. This applies to the institution of the church as well as to each one of us as individuals. You can probably see lots of applications in your life if you think about it for a moment. What else can we take from this? That our faithlessness and sin often, I should say always, does not just affect us. Our faithlessness in sin does not just affect us. You know, one of the greatest lies the devil tells people and convinces them is that sin is contained. That somehow my personal sin doesn't affect my neighbor or my coworker or my family member. Friends, that's a lie. All sin ripples. There is no such thing as a private sin. Don't buy into that lie. Wrongful thoughts, words, and deeds ripple out and cause real harm for people that you love. Some of us know this too well. We also know that God is faithful to forgive those sins. Number three, God's mercy is abundant. God's mercy is abundant. God's mercy is so much more than we can comprehend. Look at this story in Genesis and how God weaves through this His grace and His mercy in a way that Abraham can't comprehend. I love Psalm 36. Does anyone know Psalm 36 there's there's, by heart? It's a great one to, to memorize because it's easy. There's a refrain in it that goes on and on and on. Do you, do you know it? Anybody know it? What's the refrain? His mercy endures forever. Yes. His mercy endures forever. It starts out, "Oh, give thanks for the Lord, for He is gracious, or He is good. His mercy endures forever. And it goes through everything, and the refrain continues, His mercy endures forever. How often, friends, do we limit God's mercy in our minds because we can't comprehend it? How often do we limit His mercy in our minds because we can't comprehend it? The story of Hagar and Ishmael is an example of, of God's mystery of mercy. And St. Paul's argument in Galatians is a complicated one, so I'm not going to get too much into it. But what he's saying in Galatians chapter 3, what St. Paul is saying regarding this, is that the Galatians, who have been influenced by the Judaizers, by those telling them to follow laws, have lost their first love of Jesus Christ. They're missing the promise. Because, ironically, the law of the Jews has overtaken them instead of the law of freedom found in Christ. Now, we'll leave it there, because that could be another sermon. But we see in this a church obsessed with rule following and moralism, the Church of Galatia. We see people slipping into the church, and rather than putting Christ first, are putting moralism first. Now, people can be pharisaical about liturgy, or card playing, or dancing. You can be pharisaical about just about anything. And that's a trap, too. We have to remember to keep the promise of God's mercy in Jesus and the freedom given in repentance and turning to Christ first and foremost in our minds. Christ does the transforming and gives the mercy. Again, we have to remember who it is and what he's done that we're proclaiming to the world. Finally, we're to rejoice at the fulfillment of God's promises when they happen. As Abraham and Sarah rejoice after 25 years awaiting Isaac, so must we rejoice when the time of waiting is passed and the time of celebrating has come. And this is true in our personal lives. I think too often we as Christians don't rejoice the way we should rejoice, right? Remember, Jesus celebrates his first miracle at the wedding of Cana with great rejoicing by making more wine. By making more wine so that they may rejoice more so that they can rejoice in what God has done. And so we have to do that personally, right? We don't just move on stoically. But we also have to rejoice as a church. And friends, today is a time of rejoicing for our church. For the next several months, we will be rejoicing at what God has done here at Lakewood Anglican, turning us from a mission to a parish. When we started this small congregation in Carol and Barney's living room, sitting in the back there, we were seven people And we quickly grew. We're now over a hundred people on our contact roster. The Lord has done an amazing thing here. He has built the house. And we have not labored in vain because we see that He has built the house. So friends, rejoice personally. Rejoice with us today. We have so much to rejoice over. Chiefly, and the promises of God fulfilled. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.